Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, in for Jerome McDonnell. President Trump landed yesterday in the U.K. and caused quite a stir with an interview he gave to the British tabloid The Sun. He criticized the British prime minister's approach to Brexit, as well as the mayor of London. And then he seemed to switch course at a press conference this morning where he had this to say about the relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. So we start off with special. I would give our relationship with the U.K. And now, especially after this two days uh, with uh, your prime minister, I would say the highest level of special. Am I allowed to go? Am I allowed to go higher than that? I'm not sure. But it's the highest level of special. They're very special people. It's a very special country. And as I said, I have a relationship because my mother was born in Scotland. So very important. And the president also had this to say about immigration. I think it's been very bad for Europe. I think uh, Europe is a place I know very well. And I think that uh, what has happened is very tough. It's a very tough situation. I mean, you see the same terror attacks that I do. We see them a lot. Uh, We just left some incredible young men, men and women at Sandhurst. And they were showing us cells and they were showing us things that, frankly, 20 years ago, nobody even thought about. Probably a lot more recently than that. Nobody even thought about. I I just think it's uh, changing the culture. I think it's a very negative thing for uh, Europe. I think it's very negative. I think having... uh, in Germany, and I have a great relationship with Angela Merkel, great relationship of Germany. But I think that's uh, very much hurt Germany. I think it's very much hurt other parts of Europe. And I know it's politically not necessarily correct to say that, but I'll say it and I'll say it loud. And I think they better watch themselves because you are changing culture. You are changing a lot of things. You're changing security. You're cha- look at what's happening. I mean, you take a look. I mean, look at what's happening to different countries that never had difficulty, never had problems. It's a very sad situation. It's very unfortunate. But I do not think it's good for Europe. And I don't think it's good for our country. We're, as you know, far superior to anything that's happened before. But we have very bad immigration laws. And we're, I mean, we're doing incredibly well considering the fact that we virtually don't have immigration laws. Those are just some of the things the president had to say earlier today at a press conference. This is the 12th visit to the U.K. by a sitting president. And since he landed, thousands of people have taken to the streets of the British capital to protest. About 100,000 people are expected on the streets of London today. The BBC's Rich Preston has been out among the crowds, and he joins us now. Welcome to Worldview Rich. Thank you for having me, Alexander. So we've heard estimates of about 100,000. Is 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 that accurate? How many people are out there? Yeah, it feels like it could easily be that. Certainly tens of thousands of people here. And uh, they don't think he should be afforded a visit to the UK. Um, and he was afforded a visit. 1.8 million people actually signed a petition, and the visit was changed from a state visit to a working visit, but it's gone through anyway. And it's actually expected that he's probably not going to see many of these protesters. What do people have to say about that? You may remember the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, was the first foreign leader 
to meet the newly inaugurated President Trump at the White House, and she invited him on this visit to the UK. He was then due to come and open the new US Embassy in London, which he then also cancelled. So he's finally made it now. He landed, as you said, last night, but he's hardly spending any time in central London. He's going later on to Windsor to have tea with the Queen, and he's having a bilateral meeting with Theresa May. Then he's off up to Scotland to play golf on his golf courses. And these people protesting here today, they know Mr. Trump isn't going to see it, and they know that he may not see much coverage coverage of it on the news, but they're not that bothered. They want the British government to see how unhappy they are with President Trump being here. Mm -hmm. So their goal is really uh, to give a message to their own government, not so much President Trump. Yeah, they respect the office of the President of the United States. They just say they don't respect the person who currently holds that office. And it's not just people who are anti-Mr. Trump. There is a protest that's been scheduled to take place tomorrow, which is uh, people in Britain who support Mr. Trump. They they say they like his policies. They say they like how direct he is and he speaks from the heart. And they remind us that America and the UK are old allies. However, it is important to say that the number of people attending that demonstration uh, are not expected to be quite the number attending this demonstration today. That's the BBC's Rich Preston in London. He's been out with protesters who are out on the streets uh, in light of President Trump's working visit to the UK. Thanks so much for joining us and telling us about the protests there. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. And Rich has also been talking with those protesters, and here are some of the things they had to say to him. You're holding this placard in front of you. Can you tell us what it says? Yes, it does. So I made this with my children, actually, and it says, My American values are respect for truth, democracy, others, science, and our planet. And you said that you're not against the American visit per se, but you are here demonstrating. I'm happy for the President of the United States to be accorded a visit to the United Kingdom. I just don't believe that this particular president represents anything I believe in or anyone's best interests. So that's an interesting one because you say you respect the office of president, but you don't have much respect for this president. So how, how should Britain be greeting President Trump? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think Britain is following modes of decorum and, which have been established for many years, and I commend them for that. I also commend the British people for allowing those of us who don't, who have very strong opinions against this particular president and his administration to demonstrate. So, in fact, you're letting us do both things. You're welcoming the office of the president, and you're letting us protest against the president himself. So, I'm guessing you didn't plan your business trip to coincide with this presidential visit? That's right. How does it feel, as an American, to be in the UK, in London, one of America's oldest allies, and see tens of thousands of people out on the streets protesting against your country? I think it's great, and I'm joining them in it. Uh, This isn't dissimilar to a protest you would see in, say, San Francisco. So previously in Britain, when there's been protests around the US, it's been around US foreign policy, principally the war in Vietnam and the war in Iraq. People here are waving placards about children being separated from their parents, Roe versus Wade. These are domestic policies. Surely it's none of these people's business. It doesn't affect them at all. Uh, you just want my opinion on that? Or? Yeah, I mean, what, what do you think? I, mean, I think it's important, and, and I, I think it's important to show that they care about those issues, 
Uh, and I think that it's also important to know that a lot of Americans also care about those issues. Uh, and I think most of the world hopefully knows that most Americans oppose these things. Uh, you know, Trump and his agenda is definitely not what most of us are for. I think that those types of issues are increasingly important to support uh, if we're ever going to kind of move forward, uh, you know, as a society and support the values that, you know, our country was built on. People here are genuinely concerned about what he's doing inside his own borders. Why do you think it's, it's driven people out onto the streets? We just don't like a bully, really. I think that's really the bottom line. We don't like we don't like to see anybody being bullied, and he seems to be a massive bully. And just devil's advocate, he is still the president of the United yeah. States. Surely we should afford him this visit and try and persuade him to change his ways rather than just throw up the gates. He's arrived, so he's actually here already. We're just letting him know that we're not happy about it. And you're holding a placard. Can you describe it and read it out? Very homemade. And it says, tiny-handed, racist, umpa-lumpa, spelled wrong, I'm aware of that, misogynist pillock. So it ends on a very British insult. Absolutely. (laughs) Tell us where you are and why you're here. Um, I'm getting a little bit tired of somebody who dictates to us from across the water what we should be doing. The man's obviously a hypocrite, self-centred, narcissistic. I I just feel that I can remember when Obama was criticised for getting involved in British politics, and I remember the hoo-ha about that. Um, I don't understand why people like uh, Rhys Mogg, for example, hasn't levelled the same criticism against Trump for doing something that, to me, is in a whole different category. One of the reasons I'm, I'm here is I feel I would have liked to have been here in 1938 and that we can see the rise of something horrific happening in America. And there are terrible shades of, of Germany, you know, in late 30s. And I feel if we don't stand up and say something now, it can only... I'm terrified it will just get worse. I mean, what he's doing there, caged children, it's, it, it's just awful. I have a piece of paper, said Mrs May. She reminds me of Neville Chamberlain appeasing Hitler. And no, we shouldn't do that. And that was the BBC's Rich Preston talking with protesters in London. In recent weeks, European leaders have been debating about how to deal with a Russian pipeline project under the Baltic Sea. President Trump came out strongly against the project at a meeting with European leaders on Wednesday. He's likely to bring up the issue when he meets President Putin in Helsinki on Monday. On the home front, though, he's been a strong proponent of new energy pipelines like the Keystone XL. Historian Timothy Mitchell has long argued that the health of a democracy has to do with how they consume energy. Jerome McDonald said, sat down with Timothy Mitchell, who's the author of Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil. I think we all look back on our history and we never really include oil and carbon in it. Um, sometimes we talk about the coal age and the industrial revolution, but we, we don't really think about our form of governance as being intertwined with fossil fuels. But um, can you give us a little idea how that is so? Well, 
I think the very kind of democracy we have has been shaped uh, over the last 100, 150 years by fossil fuels. On the one hand, when we were dependent on coal, the very possibility of engaging in powerful democratic action uh, rested on the ability to interrupt uh, energy supplies to an economy in a way that hadn't existed before the age of coal. There was such dependence on one source of energy that workers could coordinate to shut down the supply to an entire country and out of that threat or the demands that came with that threat, uh, modern mass democracy was born in countries of, of northern Europe and, uh, and, and in North America. So coal strikes were a big thing that we, we don't ever talk about, but they had a big effect on a uh, big reaction to it by business and government. A big reaction um, initially, uh, very often, especially in Europe, uh, giving in to demands that had been resisted for a long time, demands for uh, more secure conditions of work, for uh, unemployment insurance, for retirement uh, pensions, for health care systems, a whole set of demands that had emerged in the late 19th century initially resisted. But once workers had the ability, as they say, to, to threaten to shut down a whole economy, uh, people had to listen and sort of modern forms of democratic politics in which populations were guaranteed uh, basic rights to health, to income in in sickness or in old age. All those, um, I think, are associated quite closely with the kind of power that workers had thanks to the dependence on coal. Well, this sounds great. What went wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Various things changed. And one of the things that changed was was the rise of oil as a second major source of energy. Because, first of all, there was um, an alternative so that uh, as as workers organized in one area, you could move to another source of energy. So a wave of coal strikes uh, in the U.S. after the Second World War was um, met partly by converting uh, trains to railroads to run more on oil than on coal. But the other thing that oil enabled you to do was outsource energy production to regions like the Middle East, which were much more removed from the direct uh, intervention in local politics. So rather like outsourcing car manufacturing to places where workers can't so easily protest or can't protest in a way that's going to affect domestic politics. Oil also is is harder to interrupt in a way because it moves in different ways, uh, different kinds of supply routes. So it sounds like you're saying oil is anti-labor and anti-democracy. Well, uh, if if you had to simplify it, yes, it's a little more complicated than that because it's partly simply having a, a, a different source of energy, an additional source of energy that came with the rise of oil, and it's, but it's also distribution of it around the world. Um, industrial democracy has grown up where coal was. Oil happened to be mostly located in other places, and it was that ability to outsource, to move, to create a long distance um, that, that was important. But yes, uh, democracy was more difficult once oil came along. Here we are caught up in, uh, in pipeline controversies here in the United States with Keystone and Dakota Access. And how, how did they uh, fit into the kind of things you're talking about? Uh, pipelines are something that I imagine aren't very labor-friendly either and aren't very democracy-friendly. They're neither. I mean, the, the ability of workforces to threaten general strikes um, disappears quite a long time ago, and partly because of the reasons I mentioned, but also because of legislation, um, Taft-Hartley Act after the Second World War that made it much more difficult for workers to coordinate action across different industries in support of political demands. 
But um, nevertheless, pipelines today have become a center of politics, not quite for those reasons in the past that you could directly uh, threaten uh, energy supply, but because they are a focus, I think, of so many different, very urgent political concerns. And one of the things they enable you to do is to concretize those concerns at a particular site and a particular project and bring people together in ways that can be difficult to do in Washington politics. One of the things that the Trump administration always refers to about pipelines on Keystone and the Dakota Access Pipeline is that they're going to be job creators. Uh, is that something that sounds real to you? Uh, no, I think that's false advertising. I mean, it's like the carrier air conditioning jobs. I mean, a, a few hundred jobs um, uh, don't amount to a, uh, a program of job creation in a country that needs to create tens of thousands of new jobs every month. So uh, I, d I don't think there's any argument from jobs. Uh, and in fact, there's an argument uh, against them in terms of employment because money that goes into pipelines is not going into renewable forms of energy, which are far more labor intensive. There's far more people, I believe, employed in the renewable energy industry than in the oil and gas and, and probably the coal industry in the United States combined. And uh, those are industries that are expanding and have a huge future, um, the solar power, the wind. I'm talking with Timothy Mitchell. He's author of Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil. It seems like pipelines reveal alliances that are invisible to us mostly in our day-to-day -day lives. We don't think about the many people uh, who are financing a pipeline, and it gets pretty complicated. The whole financial backing for the fossil fuel industry, we don't think about them as being uh, committed determined uh, fossil fuel promoters, but they are. Absolutely. Uh, the, the boom in oil production in North Dakota and other regions over the last eight years or so was uh, driven in part by banks. Um, after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, banks that had made a lot of money by investing in subprime mortgages, um, in real estate booms and so on, were looking for new places to, uh, to create credit and to create new kinds of booms. And uh, with the increasing price of oil, the oil industry was a place to do it. So while there were other interests, including oil producers themselves, the large banks, uh, Citibank and, and um, Bank of America and many others, uh, became big promoters of the possibility of a renaissance in uh, American oil production. And, and those are the, 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 the institutions that are funding these new pipelines. Does that make the financial sector, uh, how big a promoter in our carbon democracy and how big a factor would you rack them up there? Because they can invest in uh, renewable energy too if they want to. Lots of them do. Sure, um, they can. I mean, I think certain kinds of projects like pipelines um, are uh, attractive because uh, they're extraordinarily expensive and yet they come, as it were, as a single package. And so you can, you can create enormous amounts of credit over, over just one big operation, whereas um, renewable energy uh, can tend to be much more diversified among many different producers and uh, 
doesn't lend itself to the same kind of very large-scale financing necessarily. I mean, there are exceptions. The banks are going to look for places where the the possibilities for credit are most easily available, and that's going to be partly shaped by government policy over questions of environmental regulation, uh, decarbonizing our future, and so on. So uh, banks can be pushed to uh, turn their investment to uh, more long-term, more renewable futures, but that has to, has to be shaped um, by forms of regulation, by forms of incentive that um, make that more attractive than, than these old industries of oil, coal, and so on. Are these alliances that we're talking about between financial companies and energy companies and uh, the government is um, they, they they do all right for each other. Is that why we have such a hard time recognizing that uh, we've got to change our ways? These institutions don't want to change. They're they're doing fine. I think that's part of it. I mean, I'd also say on the other hand that the the movement to change is enormously strong, and the the pipeline protests, um, both uh, initially around Keystone XL pipeline and more recently around the Dakota Access pipeline, are. Uh, extraordinary example of um, political forces, um, social movements coming together um, precisely because they um, they both sort of concretize, they give a concrete uh, situation and place, but also because there's so many different kinds of social movements and concerns. There are um, Native Americans whose land is, is threatened. There are local communities whose uh, water supply or farmland. There are um, uh, environmental activists uh, on a national scale, and there are people, ab- above all, concerned about the threat of catastrophic climate change and uh, collapse of forms of life we've been used to over many centuries. So all those can come together in a single place and form alliances. And I think uh, the ability of pipelines to do that um, and, and the amount of political pressure that can be built um, is, is an important aspect of contemporary politics. Does it sometimes seem to you like, though, it's a pea shooter going up against um, Mahowitzer, that the other <laughs> people have so much uh, more power and they're insulated from these social movements? They, um, they, they can, you know, they seem to uh, be able to fight back bigger and better and get, get their candidates elected. And, you know, we've elected someone um, who really doesn't seem to care about uh, you know, reducing fossil fuel usage. He's he's um he was really gung ho about it. Absolutely. I mean, it is a huge setback. At the same time, uh, they're losing in the longer term simply because of the enormous difference between the future offered by oil and other fossil fuels and by renewables. Um, on the other hand, I think one way to think about it is that, um, and, and, and the reason why they're sort of facing a losing battle in the long term, is that although we talk about everything as, as just forms of energy, there's fossil fuel energy, renewable energy, they're actually completely different things. They're not just variations of, 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 of one thing. By that, I mean that fossil fuels are a resource. They're something in the ground that has to be extracted. And over time, particularly the period we are now, uh, the cost of doing that goes up and up and up as the resource becomes more scarce. And that's what we've seen with North American oil production. Renewable energy is something very different. For the most part, it's not, it's not a resource 
uh, that you're going to run short of. It's a technology. And the difference between a resource and a technology is that whereas the resource gets more expensive over time, the technology gets cheaper. And we've seen that. And it's happening continuously, wind power, solar power. From that point of view, although oil companies and banks can put a lot of money into politics, they can't actually reverse the trends that are underway. Well, what do you think it would do to our democracy to be more uh, reliant on renewable energy? I don't think you can sort of read the degree of democracy directly off the the form of energy, but it um, has been the case that oil companies in particular and the banks that are closely allied with them, among, if not the very largest corporations in history over the last hundred years, the rise of giant multinational corporations. And inevitably, they have had extraordinary uh, political power um, outside the democratic process, whether in the United States or elsewhere. Um, renewable energy is not organized on that uh, kind of corporate scale, and perhaps it's a little harder because the, the forms of monopoly that that depends on the control of sources is a little harder with renewable energy. So it's not automatically the case that as you move to renewable energy, you get more democratic. But I think the potential is certainly there as um, the sources of energy become more distributed and as those involved in producing it uh, can, can operate at a smaller scale, at a more local scale, at a scale that's under the control of communities and so on. You sound vaguely optimistic. Uh, well, one searches in, in the dark times we're living in for, for, for straws. But no, I, I don't want to minimize what a different and a dangerous age we're living in. But I do think that the, the place one can find reason for optimism is, um, is, is just how visible and blatant the kind of politics that we're facing is. They're, they're, they're not hiding it in any way. Um, and you can see that with any number of recent uh, moves by by the Trump administration. And I, I think one result of that we've seen is that the opposition to what's done, whether it's on the, the Muslim immigration ban or other recent moves, is, is that opposition comes very quickly um, on, on a very large scale. And that, that, I suppose, is the reason for optimism. Timothy Mitchell is the author of Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Coming up after the break, film contributor Milo Stalik will tell us about the film The Cake Maker. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and film contributor Milos Delik is here, as he is every Friday. Milos is the director of Facets Multimedia. Hey, Milos. Hey, Alexandra. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, two films, and the first one is called The Cake Maker. Tell us a, story, a little bit about the story of this Well, film. it starts, it's, it's, it's an Israeli film, first of all. It's a first feature. It's set and starts in Berlin, where Thomas is a baker. Uh, who starts a relationship with a visiting um, businessman who comes to Berlin like once a month on business, whose name is Oren, who is Israeli. The two start a relationship, which uh, and what Thomas does not know is that Oren uh, is married and in Israel and has a family. And he only finds this out when Oren disappears. Eventually, he finds out that he was killed in a tragic car accident. And so now he decides to go back, not, of course, saying I was Oren's lover, uh, and work his way into the life of this family. Yeah, it's a really interesting premise of a story. Uh, so does it work? It's a, you know, it's a very nice film, small film, quite wonderful film, full of heart, um, with very likable characters who are all trying to do the right thing. So it's a very feel-good movie, even though it has a kind of a tragic premise. It's kind of a romantic movie in a way, because then, of course, what happens, and I don't want to give away the whole plot, Mm -hmm. but once inside Israel and once uh, Thomas uh, finds a relationship or finds a way of working with Anat, the wife of Oren, who runs a little cafe. He starts baking. And of mm. course, that's really wonderful because this is kind of like bakery porn right. in, the, in the film. So <laughs> got a lot of beautiful pastries, you know, pastry porn. Uh, so, so, and of course, the business expands because now she is uh, much more successful. She's got these wonderful pastries in her cafe. And then, of course, we run into some back end of the Israeli society because her brother happens to be orthodox and her restaurant is kosher and there have become all these questions that Thomas is not Jewish and he's not certified to be kosher so she's going to lose her license. So we have this kind of a background back end and of course ultimately it becomes a film about Love relationships, being close to each other, and so it's a very feel-good movie. It's done. It's a very small film. It was shown last year for the first time at the Calvary Film Festival. It opened in New York and Los Angeles before opening here at the Gene Siskel Film Center, and it's done remarkably well. So it's a crowd-pleasing film, and, and an interesting mix of uh, various social issues, sexuality, religion, uh, two different cultures all coming together. In, exactly, in because we're all different, we're all diverse, but you know, still love, relationships, caring for each other ultimately matter. And that film is playing at the Landmark. At the Siskel Film Center. At the Siskel Film Center. All right, so people should check that out. Uh, now, the other film, this next one is documentary um, looks really, really interesting. This is a documentary about uh, Vivian Westwood. And people might know the name, might have seen the she's the punk icon, fashion designer, and plaids, platform shoes, t-shirts, rip clothes, this sort of thing. Remind people of who she well, is. Well, you know, she's a designer uh, who has been in, more, possibly more influential on other designers, even though she is very successful globally. She has 100 stores around the world, perhaps better known outside of the U.S. than, than she's known here. Certainly brought British fashion up against the French fashion, um, you know, does a full line, does men's, women's clothes, ready to wear. Uh, and as you said, I mean, was, was started out as a punk icon, really the first people to wear her clothes, which she 
started designing as a child, self-taught, were the Sex Pistols because mm-hmm. of her husband then who uh, had a relationship with the Sex Pistols. And so they, they began popularizing her clothes, hence that punk icon image. Uh, and out of that, of course, grew ultimately That's an Empire. What's interesting about this film, and this filmmaker had quite unprecedented access to Vivian Westwood and to the archives for almost a period of almost three years is the kind of dichotomy between, which exists for a lot of designers. There are a lot of films mm-hmm. now about clothes designers. And usually, as here, the central conflict is between the art right. of fashion and-, and the commerce of fashion, which becomes such a stressful element. Vivian Westwood has really taken this kind of in an external way because she's become quite outspoken against capitalism and against against this kind of consumer culture and also very involved in the environmental movement. I'm going to we have a clip from the documentary Westwood Punk Icon Activist and it it kind of speaks to sort of this idea of of what got her going. Here's here's that clip. I grew up with the idea that you're supposed to stay with one man. You're supposed to find the one man. What we were actually living was the American dream. The housewife, all smiling, all lovely little hairstyle and crisp with an apron on and everything. And hubby comes home and he's got ideal family. And somehow that's it. That's all you see. But the American dream stops there. (laughs) I just realised, no, no, it's all a load of old rubbish. What a lot of old bollocks that is. Somehow I had to explore, I had to get out. And that's a clip from the documentary Westwood Punk Icon Activist. And so she she has been from the very early stages someone who wanted to kind of buck the system, really, and get out there and change things up. And you talked about this struggle that she's had between um, her business, which she's got stores all over the world, and there's sort of nothing more kind of consumerism than the fashion industry, right? Well, exactly. And and it's, it's you know, to, she's an idealist. I mean, she lived in a housing flats or council flats for most of her life until quite recently that she actually got a house with her third husband, Andreas, who's the co-designer. So there's so obviously what's driving her is, is not exactly the money, although, of course, she is very well-to-do and quite wealthy. Right. This, outside of the film, if you really research Vivian Westwood uh, and her commitments, especially to environmental activism, uh, has become kind of a a point in the discussion because, of course, she also doesn't apparently uses offshore tax havens. So mm-hmm. her cry against capitalism, you know, goes counter to this. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing, you know, with the environmental movement, with one organization that she was associated with also who are much more purist than Vivian Westwood is and say, well, what are you doing using Chinese plastics and et cetera in your clothing? So, you know, it's not a pure world, but but certainly she's a, a very active, vocal voice in this. And the film has become quite controversial because it elicited this enormous conflict between this filmmaker and Westwood, who doesn't like the film. Right. And now the filmmaker, uh, she was someone who admired Westwood. And Westwood didn't just not like the film. Uh, I believe The Sun has said 
we want all the footage back. I mean, she she hated the film. Yeah, she said a very funny quote. She said, the film about me is mediocre. I am not. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is a really great, great film and probably true because uh, this is the first film for Lorna Tucker, who's the filmmaker who actually has a background as a visual artist, who has a kind of a troubled life. She was homeless at one point. She was a heroin addict when she was a teenager. She worked her way into the fashion industry and she apparently convinced Vivian Westwood to give her access, this unprecedented access, because she would make a film about Westwood as an activist. And again, to the truth of Westwood's complaint, the film is only in part about Westwood an activist and not very clearly. I mean, there's shots of Westwood on Mm -hmm. a Greenpeace board going to visit melting icebergs. Okay, we get that. We see her protesting, but it doesn't really delve into this much further beyond that into the issues. And we get a lot of fashion footage, which is, of course, from the archives and which is a lot of fun to watch because she is extremely creative and inventive and, you know, full of pizzazz and imagination. So, it's it's seductive, and I understand also to the point of the filmmaker why she put that in because otherwise, who wants to go? Right, watch this it is from, what you want to see right, about exactly. Vivian West. I mean, it, it's a kind of inter- inter- interesting conundrum because, as you mentioned, she, they had unfettered access several years, and then um, you know the film comes out, and the the person doesn't who's the subject doesn't like you know how it turns out, and I imagine this happens all the time between filmmakers and their subjects where ultimately the filmmaker is going to make those final choices. And uh, the this director has has defended her choices, saying she thinks it's a tribute to Westwood, but it has essentially ended their friendship. Yes, I mean, this happens quite frequently. You know, I mean, obviously having a film made about yourself is trusting yourself, uh-huh. uh, you know, to a lot to the filmmaker. I mean, there's also, because if you don't have the right to oversee the final cut, it's all about control, obviously. And it's especially prescient in the fashion industry because image is everything. everything. And so the image here, just like the image in movies, you know, actors demanding what profile only they can be seen in, all of that kind of stuff really, really, really matters because, hey, the brand and millions of dollars and the whole people employed, all of this stuff is behind it. And one misplaced film can really ruin it. So they're, of course, very protective about this. And as have as are politicians or other people who, of course, are very unhappy when something that they said off record or, you know, was recorded or found someplace in an archive suddenly comes out and happens to be in the movie and they're not shown in the light that they would prefer to be seen in. Uh, that's the documentary Westwood Punk Icon and Activist. Uh, where's this one showing, Milos? This is at the Music Box. All right. People should check out The film Westwood Punk Icon Activist is the documentary about Vivian Westwood. Coming up after the break, Nari Safavi will join us with his picks for your global weekend. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. You're 
listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. Every week, global citizen Nari Safavi joins us to offer up ways for you to enjoy global culture without having to buy a plane ticket. Where are you going to take us today, Nari? Good day, Alexandra. It's great to be here. We're going to India of the 1600s, and we're going to the Taj, and the Taj Mahal, and the, and the, inf- and the famous palace, and the marvel of architecture. And there's a great play going on at the uh, at the Steppenwolf Theater to, uh, until July 22nd at 1650 North Halstead, and it's called The Guards at the Taj. And and what's the story here of this play? The story is really basically a dialogue between two guards who are there to protect uh, the Taj Mahal and the beauty of the Taj Mahal. And uh, and what happens over there is really afterwards, after the conversations between these two characters, is really shocking. I don't want to give away too much. And some of it is just brilliantly done. Some of it, I think, unjustifiably done. But the process is really intriguing, and it's definitely worth checking out. And we're joined by two of the actors from the play. Ariane Moyed plays the role of Babur, one of the guards of the Taj. Welcome to Worldview. Hello. And Omar Metwale plays the role of Humayun. He's another one of the guards at the Taj. Welcome. Thank you. Um, and I believe we have a, a clip from the play. Um, set us up the scene. Sure. Um, the w- One of the cool things about this play is that one of the character that I play of Babur and guards of the Taj um, predicts things that happen in the future. So he looks up to the stars as he's guarding and sees that, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have this giant, wouldn't it be cool to have a giant palanquin that could float to the stars like some giant bird? And so he predicts these things that end up actually happening. Well, after this atrocity um, that happens in the middle of this play, um, those fantasies and those predictions turn uh, to nightmares. Um, And he's now explaining the nightmare that he just had. Here it is. With aeroplats, you can defeat any army of men on elephants without a problem. But these were the aeroplats of a distant army, and they were coming for us. For us? For Hindustan. And do you know how they would know when they found us? Guess. I don't know. Guess. I don't know. I don't know how aeroplats work. Taj Mahal. They'll see it shining like the moon, and the first thing they'll destroy is that. And that's a scene from the play Guards of the Taj. It's playing at the Steppenwolf Theater through July 22nd. And we're talking with uh, a couple of the actors from the play and Nari Safavi. Um, Ariane, I'm wondering if you could just uh, give us a sense. You, you're actually friends with the playwright. The mm. play is actually about friendship in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. And you, you, you all know the playwright. Um, tell us a little bit about what the inspiration. Why did he select the Taj Mahal? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Rajiv and I did a show called Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which ended up being on Broadway. He wrote this play for Omar and I. So we were heavily involved in like the making of Guards of the Taj. Um, I think, you know, uh, Rajiv is uh, half Indian and half Cleveland and um, when he was a kid you know every summer I think he would fly back to India and meet his family there that lived all over uh, India and and the Taj Mahal was a constant conversation starter um, and and um, the, the myths and the legends around the Taj Mahal were also uh, a huge part of his upbringing and one of his aunts really kind of inspired just like the beauty of the Taj and, 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 and how important it was for him and, and their family and their culture and 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 
Rajiv, like in his brilliant fashion, kind of like made it what happens if like this this man, Shah Jahan, who is, you know, who is the emperor of of India of that time. What happens if he asks these you know, people just to do the most gruesome things because of power and and because of, you know, just all that. And um, so that's, I think, how it all started. Am I forgetting anything, Omar? I don't think so. Uh-huh. Well, that's, uh, you know, uh, the central the central uh, point, I think, to this play and probably the history of what happened there is is the is beauty and its conception, its role in human lives and probably in the role of, uh, of, in the conception of power that people in 1600s in that part of the world had, beauty was very important, was just as important as ability to inflict violence or accumulate wealth mm-hmm. in terms of their conception of power. Yes. And, uh, and this is really uh, what I think uh, we as modern audiences, we kind of miss. We kind of look at beauty as an item of consumption, something to possess or whatever, but it doesn't get into our core as to who we are mm-hmm. as human beings. We just kind of want to satiate that little part longing within us. And this is how a person in 1600s who had a lot of power satiated that core <laughs> about longing for beauty there. Uh, I think the play doesn't quite relay that contextualized that feeling, that soul, that emptiness in the soul of Shah Jahan that might have been there to order such a grand atrocity, uh, command of atrocity, uh, but it still it provokes a lot of questions. And you too do really do a fantastic job doing that repartee between the two characters. The dialogue is really, really good good and crisp and now that i know that you guys had a part in writing it actually i realized that it was really written for you guys Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's why the the acting is so good not to be taking credit away from uh, you as actors but the acting is fantastic and the sense of timing is uh, is really fantastic it's a bit of a you know quentin tarantino kind of applied to theater going on over here it's really crisp dialogue Uh, I walked away out of uh, from it a little bit feeling uh feeling like something was amiss but then I'm not here to talk about things that I only like in the in the in the in the, in the weekend passport segment we talk about the creative process and global inspirations for creativity over here and cultural experiences you can have so tell us a little bit about the writing process that you guys had with Rajiv and how you, how you conceived the two characters well, uh, Rajiv had, as Aryan mentioned, Rajiv had an idea for the play um, based – I think he had been living with this legend about the, the Taj since he was a kid and he had been sort of haunted by this uh, legend and, and he wanted to explore that. And so um, he originally had the first scene of the play, which is these two guards who have been friends since childhood standing there talking about the Taj on the day it's going to be unveiled to the world. Um, and it's, it was hidden during its construction. It was uh, hidden from view. So um, – and we developed the play in New York at a place called the Lark Play Development Center, uh-huh. and uh, which is a sort of a roundtable, uh, weekly roundtable with playwrights and actors. And he brought in the first scene. We read it and then talked about it. Next week, he brought in the second scene and, and on and on until there was a draft of the play. And then over the, the next two years, 
Arian and I became sort of obsessed with the play. Um, we fell in love with it, and we it's amazing. And we, we would talk and talk and talk and uh, about it, and um, slowly together, kind of shaped the play. Um, it's definitely Rajiv's play, but um, we had a lot of input during that process, um, and he is very open, um, very collaborative writer and is really only interested in good ideas. And so from whatever the source. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned so this there are all these myths around the Taj Mahal and um, yet it's an it actually exists. It's a it's a real building. Millions of tourists can go see it today in India. Um, And you all um, actually took a trip to visit in person. Um, And so you went to, to visit the actual site, the play kind of incorporate some of the myths uh, around uh, when it was built. Um, how did the the actual visit and, and seeing the Taj in person sort of influence what you brought to your interpretation of the role of this fictional version of the story? Omar? Um, well, it's, it's an astonishing thing to see. It really is unique and hard to describe, I think, um, the experience of, of, of seeing this masterpiece of architecture and art. Um, And there's really no substitute when when you're making a play about something to to having had the actual experience of uh, of seeing this thing. And so that infiltrates the, the work and the dialogue and the the script um but the play the play is really i think uh about their friendship among other things mm-hmm. and um so the the the, sto- the story of the taj the legends of the taj this idea of beauty is um actually a framework for a number of themes that the play explores uh friendship authority and authoritarianism, resistance to authority and authoritarianism. Um, and of course, the, the role that beauty plays in, in our world. And so I, I think, um, of course, visiting the Taj Mahal was an amazing experience and is very much a part of the play. Um, but the fact that we've been friends for 15 years Helps. is probably a bigger, yeah. a bigger part <laughs> of the play. Helps with the rapport. Yeah. <laughs> sure. and, and, it, and it is a good way of, of, of actually talking about it because because there are nights when we do the show where we go you know, to the front bar downstairs and literally we see people look at us and want to just weep. And we hold yeah. strangers and they hold us and they're just weeping in our arms because it's really that powerful. Ariane uh, Moyed plays the role of Babor in Guards of the Taj. Omar Matwali plays the role of Humayun in Guards of the Taj. The play is at the Steppenwolf through July 22nd. People should take their friends and uh, go see this play about Absolutely. friendship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nari Safavi, we uh, have 
one second for you to give us one short recommendation. Yeah, that you don't wanted. miss 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by the Looking Glass Theater this weekend. They have a family event going on on Saturday. Your kids can go into the lobby and hang out with the characters. Check that out. Okay, be sure to check that out. Nari Safavi is one of the founders of Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange. We'll see you next week, Nari. Monday on Worldview, we'll talk about the latest indictments of 12 Russians as part of the Mueller investigation. Hope you can join us for that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, with production assistance from Viviana Garcia Blanco. Mike Gilmore engineered today's show. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.